In a world where it seems totally normal to listen to a podcast about the Toronto Argonauts, it's the X's and Argos podcast. Welcome to a special edition of the X's and Argos podcast brought to you by Funny Bone Broth. My name is Ben Grant and joining me this week, special guest co-host, I've got author Paul Woods, author of Year of the Rocket. Paul, thank you so much for joining me and making this possible. I'm really excited about this. Oh, Ben, I'm excited too. Thank you. I mean, I think you do a great job with the podcast. To be called your your co-host is is, is an honor. Trust me. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, it I want to before, you know, I want to spend some time today for sure talking about your book, You're the Rocket. I'm really excited about it. I I loved your first book, Bouncing Back, and we'll talk about that a little bit too, if that's okay with you. But let's, why don't we start off by just kind of doing a a state of things at the moment, because we're basically at the halfway point in the season. The Argos sometimes have looked great, sometimes have struggled. I would love to hear your thoughts on where the team is right now. Like, how do you feel when you look out onto that football field? Are you optimistic? Are you you nervous? Where are you right now? Yeah, I'm. I'm very optimistic. I'm bullish on the team. I think they've. I think they. Uh, they're. I'm, frankly, to be four and three at this point after the schedule they've had is great. Uh, you know, four of the first seven were on the road. Uh, they played the Bombers twice. They played the, the Tiger Cats twice. They played the. They played the Stampeders when we thought the Stampeders were going to be a dominant team. They haven't had a chance to play the the Weak Sisters, the Ottawa Rough or Rough Riders. Dating myself, the Ottawa Red Blacks. Um, I'm very and and I think. I think that we've seen an enormous amount of depth on the team. I mean, they've obviously had tons and tons of injuries uh, in pretty well every position. Uh, and I love what I'm seeing from from the guys that have stepped in for the most part. I mean, I, I sure I've got some I've got some areas where I think they need to some improvement, and, I, and I'm glad to talk about that. But but I I'm really impressed with the Canadian depth. I think their their last two drafts have been unbelievable. I, I think I heard that they they've started or they played. 10 Canadian rookies already in the first seven games, which is just about unheard of. I mean, that's two draft classes that have basically been already on the roster and guys are contributing. Some guys are contributing incredibly well. I mean, uh, Peter Nicastro is a, is a starter at center and he's going to be a starter for a long time. Um, you know, they've got uh Brissette has, has contributed at receiver, um, and they've got guys that were drafted a couple of years ago, like Shane Richards, I think has been a revelation at, at the, the left guard spot since Blake went down and Nicastro moved over. Um, I'm, I'm very impressed with the depth and, and, and also the, the international depth, the American players. I mean, they, they've had so many injuries on the defensive line. It's ridiculous. I mean, the guys that we thought would play uh, uh, Shane Ray, Coney Ely, uh, Cordero law, you know, we barely seen them. Um, They've had injuries at the back end. They lost Robertson Daniel after week one. Um, they've lost other guys back there. They, now we're playing without two starting national linebackers. Um, so I am super pumped about the team. I think, I mean, I, it's, it's pretty clear now that we've been through seven games and Hamilton is better than they looked at first. I mean, they looked pretty awful in the first two weeks. And I thought, great, like, good. It's going to be easy to get through these. I don't think it's going to be easy to get through these because Hamilton's defense is, is really tough. Although, you know, I, I don't want to overstate that because this the, the league has become so defensive oriented that almost everybody's defense looks good to some extent. Um, and I think we can beat Hamilton. I think we can beat Montreal. I think we can come out of the East. Um, if we get if we get everybody healthy, we're going to have loads of more people that we can use. Uh, I'm very interested to see what Chris Jones decides to do personnel wise and scheme wise. Uh, I'm sure that what we saw the other night was only a taste of it. In fact, I think it was almost a weird hybrid. I mean, it was him and Stubler kind of teaming up. And I, my sense was that really wasn't a Chris Jones called game, but I was very impressed with the way he dialed up pressure on that one play that led to the, the Richardson interception. It was the one not time I really noticed a heavy blitz. I think they ran, they, they ran rush six guys on that play. You would know because you follow that stuff even closer than I do, Ben, but I thought, man, there's pressure coming. And then sure enough, he got the pick, right? Um, so I want to see, I'm sure Jones is spending a lot of time this week looking at film and figuring out personnel. And he's going to, I think a few guys might end up being gone 
on. I mean, I don't think we're going to keep everybody that's there right now if once guys get healthy. Uh, but I'm looking forward to seeing what we can do when we get everybody going in his scheme. Um, I like the two running backs a lot. I like the fact that we're using two running backs quite often. Now, that's so unusual. We haven't seen that in this market, oh my God, like I don't even remember the last time we had an actual two-back set. It's way before Milanovic and Tressman. Um, it was just like unheard of to think that you'd use two, two, two international running backs at the same time. And they're using them in creative, clever ways. They're doing gadget plays. They're pushing the ball downfield. Uh, as you know from reading me online, I like McLeod Bethel-Thompson a whole lot. Uh, I was impressed and I am impressed with Art Buckle. I mean, he's, he's done some frustrating things. He's dropping the ball way too much. Um, he's not protecting the ball either in the air or on, in his hands as well as he needs to be, uh, but he's clearly got a lot of potential and he's already sort of realizing some of that potential. I think McLeod Bethel Thompson, I was not at all surprised he played so well the other night or against Calgary in week one. I believe the guy is ready to be a starting quarterback. Uh, we'll see what they end up doing. I mean, I think we're going to see both guys at times throughout the rest of the season uh, who ends up being the starter assuming we get into the playoffs. And I think that's a pretty safe bet. Uh, we'll see. But uh, I like I like everything about this team, basically, other than the fact that they've done stupid penalties and stupid mistakes at inopportune times. They've made, I mean, of the four wins, three of them were arguably made way harder than they needed to be. We should have, we should have beaten Winnipeg by 20 points. Uh, we should have beaten Hamilton by more than a point. We should have beaten Montreal by more than three points. We let those teams back off the mat. So I like to think that that means we're learning how to be better so that when it's when those games happen in the second half of the season, we aren't going to take our foot off the throat and we'll start winning games by bigger. Sorry, that was a long answer, but there you go. No, no that's great. And just to comment on a few things that you said there, too. So, well, the the, the Chris Jones blitz that you talked about, I think that was the only, uh, you know, super pressure of of the game, the only dog blitz that he sent. It was cover zero. Charleston Hughes ended up actually backing out of that. He was supposed to rush, ah. but he saw that he wasn't going to get through. He backed out a little bit. Wow. Uh, that created a weird space issue, and that kind of allowed Shaq to break off his guy, and that led to the pick. Uh, but, I, that's uh, where I love, I love hearing what you have to say, because you see things – You've got a coach's mindset, which I don't have, and so I would not have I would not have picked up on that. I just saw, man, there's guys coming from every angle here, and then the next thing you know, I'm cheering because there's an interception in our hands, right? So thank you for for that, and and for continue to share those kinds of insights because I love them. I appreciate you saying that, although I can't take credit for that one. I actually didn't see it either. Shaq Richardson's the one that shared that with okay. me because I asked him post game, and usually I am pretty good at picking up on that stuff, but I couldn't yeah. read the coverage on that. I knew we were sending right. heat. But I asked him after the game, I'm like, Shaq, what, what coverage were you in? And he explained that to me. And then when I went back to rewatch, I was I was on wow. it. But I got to give credit to Shaq Richardson. Well, but, what, a uh, thought, what a thought process from Hughes, though, eh? to, to dis- determine that I'm not getting through and to drop in. Like, that's a veteran's mindset. And I, I got to assume uh, Jones knows what Hughes is all about and vice versa. I don't know if, if Jones, I don't think Jones was in Calgary when Richardson was there. So I'm guessing they're new to each other, but, but I, I like the idea of having Hughes. I think, I think we're going to see a, a better Hughes the second half. Not that he was terrible. He wasn't, he obviously is not making a lot of sacks. Um, and, but I, I think, I think with his, his experience and, and knowledge and, and what I assume is quite a bit of, uh, uh, you know, empathic knowledge between him and Jones, I think we're going to see more of, of that sort of stuff. And that's fascinating to hear that he did that. That's really interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's just a really veteran move to know that, okay, I've got my guy to commit already to blocking me, but I can't get there. I can be helped here. And right, right. little things like that, you never, you never hear about that kind of stuff. And so yeah. it, it, was, it was really cool to see. And I, I think Chris Jones probably knows most of these guys pretty well, even the ones he hasn't coached, because I think that he's spent enough time around the league. Like he, he knows mm-hmm. the CFL inside and out. Yeah. He was a wonderful yeah. CFL coach. These, most of these guys that we're talking about aren't brand new players. So yeah, that's he's right. familiar with a lot of the, the yeah, even though he's been gone for a couple of years, we've got a lot of guys that have been in the league for four or five years. So he's seen guys, he's seen guys like, uh, uh, um, you know, Edwards play and he's seen guys of, you know, a whole pile of the guys on the back and he's seen them before he's seen, obviously seen Mwamba and judge, I guess he, he coached, 
Mwamba, I believe, in Saskatchewan. Coach McCoyle in Edmonton. Uh, so you know, yeah, he knows he knows what he's dealing with. And now I think it's just a case of how how can he kind of move the chess pieces around the board in the right way. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing a pressure type defense. I've always loved those. The league's gone away from that, I think, in recent years. Uh, to, you know, the sort of the bend but don't break, which is kind of the Rich Stubler style. And I just I don't love that style of defense. Uh, I hope Jones. I don't want pressure in every single play because you can you can overcome that as an offense but you bring it in at the right time in an unpredictable ways you can do a lot of havoc on offenses yeah absolutely and something that just occurred to me i hadn't really thought about this until you were going through some of the injuries that we've had in different positional groups the the running backs are basically the only positional yeah. group that hasn't been injured and that's usually the first guy to go yeah. like it's it's such a, a a volatile position in terms of injury risk and those you know the unfortunately running back careers are really short because it's such a toll that uh, is taken on their body and yet the running backs knocking on wood here uh, have managed to to stay healthy fullback and and running back and so maybe yeah. it's because of the platooning uh, of the the two backs there but uh, yeah that's that's been a stroke of luck yeah However, that's we know true there's although i you know i think when when they when they moved foster into the lineup but don't forget aj olette had played a couple of games and they they described him as having gotten a bit dinged up but really i think that was probably more they needed to get foster into the lineup and clearly we've seen why i mean yeah he had he had two plays last last friday in the fourth quarter when he was going backwards he'd like he lost 18 yards on on two carries which drove me nuts but he's a great player and he and and they can use him in so many ways he's like a he's one of these swiss army knives that you can you can run them you can you can go sideways you can go up the middle you can you can get him out in in space on a on a defensive back and you're and you're right and white's been white's been a revelation i mean i i didn't really know if he had much left in the tank um been around the league for a few years uh and running backs as you know don't tend to last that long but he's been really good i mean he 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 rips open a few eight yard gains every game it feels like uh often on first down when you really want to get a big big game uh so yeah let's keep those guys healthy for sure because i don't know that there's much else behind them i think they've got one running back on the practice roster but i would hate to lose either guy yeah, agreed. And, you know, they, they've both been fantastic. And I, I think they both got that great burst off the line. They're very different backs in some ways. And yet the things they have in common, they're great in pass protection. They have that sort of four yard explosiveness. Uh, usually whenever there's a handoff, I have to do a quick double check just to see, wait, wait a second, who's yeah. that with the ball? Yeah, because they right. have yeah. that same first step. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's not every day that you find a running back like that. And especially that have all those other intangibles too. So, yeah. I'm, well, I'm, one of the things that I look for sitting where I do, sitting behind the bench uh, in 124 is, you know, to see the way players interact with each other. And I love watching that. And I've seen, I've seen a few times where it's clear those two guys have a lot of liking and respect for each other. And you could, I mean, they could be rivals, right? I mean, they could be thinking you're taking my carries and I don't see that at all. I think white in particular seems to have embraced foster as wow, I got this other weapon. It's just going to open things up for me and for, for, and for Rogers and for Daniels and all those guys, right? So you want that kind of that kind of mentality on your team, and I think we've got that. I really one thing I am really impressed with is the body language of the players. I mean, I we've been through two pretty bad years, right? The last two years were awful, and and there were there were guys that were seemed to be checked out. Uh, the one thing I, that drove me crazy was back way back we had a couple of sort of a draft choices in at the offensive line mason woods was one of them and just never seemed to even be remotely part of the team uh but i i like looking at churchill and giffen like when they're when the defense is on the field those guys are whipping up the crowd like it's just it's really good to see all that stuff the camaraderie is excellent it's something i noticed right away in training camp and it's something that i haven't really seen before not to this level certainly mm. where anytime there was a break there was a veteran player talking usually to a younger player and trying to coach them up, trying to work on something. When practice would end, almost nobody would leave because wow. everyone else wanted to, you know, they wanted to stay, they wanted to pick brains, people wanted yeah. to help out a little bit. And like you're saying with, with White and Foster, that's true with pretty much every positional group. You've got a veteran guy who in some teams might feel threatened by the younger guy coming up. And in this case, that's that's really not what's going on. They're trying to make the whole team better. And so you get guys like like uh, Sam Machampong, who's who's learning from this, this great wealth of knowledge that they have in, in these American defensive linemen. And you've got uh, some of the 
CFL rookies like Jamal Peters, uh, like Tristan Deku, who are able to to pick the brain of Shaq Richardson, and he's so happy to help them with it. And Jeff Richards, and they're they're passing on what they know and trying to trying to do whatever they can to make sure that that this team makes it all the way. So that kind of stuff is great. But I also have to give some credit to the coaching staff because in the example, I think maybe White and Foster is the easiest one to look at. But after that big breakout game that DJ Foster had, I think, you know, maybe maybe White was thinking to himself, you know, what's what's going to happen here? Is this going to be his job now? Yeah, right. And good on the coaches for going right back out with White and saying, no, no, Foster's great and we're going to use him. But, you know, you're still, you're, the guy. you're still starting. You're on the first series. Yeah, that's right. You know, a couple of things there to, to just pick up on your comments. Ashen Pong's been a revelation. The guy has been really strong. Uh, I, I, I'm so happy with his development. because We obviously needed it when Malumba and, and Judge went down. He had to play almost every snap last week. I think I think I saw he sat a little bit in the second quarter and the fourth quarter when they had Robbie Smith in there and Hendricks. But for the most part, it was the four. The main four guys played most of the game. And he's been very, very good. The other thing on the coach. I do want to say one thing. I mean, I, I actually really like Ryan Dinwiddie a lot. I think he's got all of the makeup to be a long-term successful head coach in this league. I love his confidence. I love his, I love his attitude. He's got to get a little bit more conservative at certain times, man. They've thrown the ball in the fourth quarter with leads to protect. And I think you're just burn the clock. We got, we got white, we got foster, man. Like, why are we throwing a ball? You just, I'd rather you like, we got a great punter. Can the ball to white, let them gain four or five yards and then kick, let Beatty kick it downfield. Don't be throwing the ball and getting an incomplete pass and stopping the clock. Right. So that's my one complaint about, about Dinwiddie is that I think he's maybe a little too aggressive at times, but you know, that's, Compared to what we've had where guys were never aggressive at all, I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take aggressive over passive. I, I think you're right though. There needs to be there needs to be a balance. And I, I think part of that is is working with uh, you know, you know, we're maybe thinking of the end of that that Hamilton game specifically, but I, I like taking chances. I like that he had faith in his quarterback to to make the throw, but yep. that's a situation where he's got to be sure his young quarterback knows yeah. I can't just throw the ball up. Because even in that yeah. situation, that interception, that horrible interception against Hamilton, the, the throwaway is also no good. You want to take right. the sack because that yeah, keeps exactly, the clock ticking. Exactly. Yes, that's right. And, you know, to, to be fair to Dinwiddie, we threw the ball with what 14 seconds left or something in the first half through a deep corner route led to a touchdown. Like that's, that's the kind of thing we would have never seen under Tressman or Chamberlain or even under Milanovic, right? They just wouldn't have tried that. So that way, and that was, that was the game changer that, that touchdown, I think it made it 21, 10 instead of 14, 10 huge momentum swing right there on that, on that butt ballsy gutsy play. So gotta love that. Uh, and you know, the fact that we've got a quarterback that could put the, lay the ball in there like that. And we've really probably got two, although I think we want to see a little bit more from, from our buckle in terms of his deeper throws. Uh, he's clearly got a good arm. He just got to, he's got to kind of get it in check properly. Um, but wow, that was a great throw that, that McLeod Bethel Thompson threw. And that was a Ricky Ray type pass. Yeah, and I, I thought his deep arm was coming along a little bit in that Saskatchewan game. I thought there were some really nice throws he made, especially on the run, rolling out left, yeah. rolling out yeah. right. And he was able yeah. to hook up with deep targets. But that is that, you know, McLeod looked so good last game yeah. uh, going downfield to some of those speedsters. I kind of wish, and I don't believe in platooning quarterbacks. That's not something that I think works, but. I kind of wish there was a way, like if this were a video game and you could have all three guys, because how good was Pipkin in those short yardage situations last game? Honestly, I would be, I would not be upset if they dressed Pipkin as a third man. You know, they, they dressed a, a near national linebacker, Cleat, the other day, and he only saw special teams duty. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not minimizing special teams duty. It's obviously very important. And we've had, we've had struggles at times on special teams this year, but I would like to think that you could coach up somebody among your nationals or your globals to, to, to do whatever he was doing on kick coverage. Uh, and if they had Pipkin as a third guy and he could become your short yardage guy. Uh, and then maybe, I mean, you know, Hamilton did it a few years ago where they, where they ran, um, 
I think it was when when Caleros. I mean, I may be wrong on the on the memory on this, but I'm trying to remember. Was it when when Caleros was still there? But they they would put Masoli in for certain packages during the game, uh, and then eventually Masoli became the starter. I think that's what it was. But so you can't. You're right. You can't rotate the guys. It's not like Joe Theismann and Greg Barton. Every series they take turns, um, and you can't predict who's going to get hot or who's going to get hurt. So you can't. You don't know for sure that you're going to be able to use both guys the way the Argos kind of use Holloway and Barnes way back in the you know, 40 years ago, but, um, I, I, I would like to see both guys playing and I would definitely like to see Pipkin in for some packages as well. He brings a whole different dimension as a guy who could run. Um, you know, we saw, he looked like he, he looked like he could have really broken free on one of his carries last week. Uh, he was with sort of one tackle away from great bust and a longer one. So man, I would, I wouldn't mind seeing the third guy dressed and instead of a, of a third string linebacker, which is basically what they have. Right. Yeah, it's a tough call, and but I, I'm starting to agree with you because I think, you know, whoever you start, whether it's Arbuckle or McLeod Bethel-Thompson, I, I think if either one of those guys gets injured, the other one of the two has to go yeah. in. Yeah. But like you say, there's got to be some value in, in having Pipkin on, uh, on, on the dress roster because uh, it's so exciting to watch, and it just gives an opposing defense that much more to prep for. The more work you give for the opposing defensive coordinator, the more watered down their defense is going to be, whether it's they're preparing for no huddle or they're preparing for packages, give it to them. Well, and, you know, I, I give credit to Dinwiddie for that as well, because it's not only like he obviously they had to dress uh, Pipkin because Arbuckle wasn't wasn't able to play, but he he did use him. He used him. He used him not just as a replacement for McLeod when McLeod got dinged up. He actually keep, he, he got back in there a few more times. It wasn't just short yardage. So, he you know, he it was pretty clear he was going to give this guy some meaningful reps and and I'm, I'm sure McLeod was good with that. In fact, I think he said some some pretty strong words of praise for Pipkin. So that's the kind of thing you need happening, right? You need to get everybody on the team to realize we're all in this. And and I actually think that's one thing that makes McLeod a really great leader is that I don't think he minds if he ends up being the backup, knowing that I'm going to be called on at some point. And I, when I go in, I'm going to be I'm going to be someone they can rely on. I think he's got the right mentality at this point after, you know, nine or 10 years of kicking around the pros and, you know, being third string or Ross or practice roster. And now he's got it. He finally gets a job. And he, you know, he might've thought, Hey, I'm after leading the league at touchdown passes, I, I deserve to be the starter, but he took less money than Arbuckle. As far as I know, he signed, I mean, he obviously tried the spring league and he did some other things too, but you know, I think the guy is, almost like Joe Barnes in the sense that he's, he's quite happy to subordinate himself and let the other guy star knowing that I'm ready when you need me and I will support you in any way I can. I feel like that's the guy's mentality. I'm so glad we've got all three of them. I'm really glad we've got McLeod Bethel Thompson as, as a backup because I think he's a fantastic backup who could be a starter or certainly on a, on one or two of the other teams, Ottawa, obviously it'd be a big miles beyond what they've got. Uh, and Pipkin, I mean, like we got, we got three experienced quarterbacks. There's nobody else in the league that's got that. Well, I guess Watford, but Watford's not got the experience that Pipkin has. Uh, so we're, we're good. If we get into some injuries, we can keep going. I love the you described the the sort of Zen attitude that uh, McLeod Bethel Thompson has. He he talked about that very openly after last game because I think he wanted to make clear that it is a really good relationship in that courtroom because in that quarterback room because of course you you know media uh, it's something that there's maybe uh, blood in the water people looking for a story is there a quarterback controversy people love yeah. talking about that writing yeah. about that and he wanted to get out there right away and say look we all we all get along wonderfully and they really do and you see that at practice the same way i described it with other positional groups and he had so much praise he talked about you know trying to be one of the first people uh in the room to watch film and there's no chance because Arbuckle's going to be in there at five o'clock in the morning. He, I think he said Arbuckle was a, I think it was a freaking scientist uh, were the words he used and the way that he dissects film and is going through stuff. And, and they love challenging each other, but in a, in a friendly way, there's just a lot of camaraderie there. And it's so wonderful to see. Now it's also, it's better when it's, when you're winning, almost anything seems cool, I guess. But, sure, sure. Uh, but I love uh, that, that chemistry because quarterback rooms, aren't always like that. And I think most of the time they're, they're not like this at all, especially when you've got three guys we're talking about. Yeah. So no, I love watching them. All right. Last thing before we, we move on sure. to some other stuff, Paul, who would you put out there? Assuming everyone's healthy after the bye, let's say Arbuckle's a hundred percent. Who do you walk out there against Ottawa? Well, 
I, you're not going to be surprised to hear me say, Ben, I would go with McLeod Bethel Thompson. I just, I felt from the beginning that he is the guy that's most ready this year. I, the, the, I mean, we want to keep our buckle for sure. He's obviously he's, he's four or four and a half years younger than, than Bethel Thompson. He's got an unbelievable upside and you can't, you can't sort of, you know, make him feel like he's not, he's not got a future here. But I also don't want to I don't want to give him the job based on the idea that, well, this is going to be our man for the future. So let's give him the job now because he's only on a one year contract. And we know Ottawa is going to be looking for quarterbacks in the off seasons. And, you know, he was there for for the season that wasn't. Uh, could they bring him back? They, they could try. Um, no, there's a few other free agents coming to be as well. I think I think Masoli is also on a one year deal in Hamilton and and there may be a few others. But I I like I like Bethel Thompson. I mean, he's the guy hasn't thrown an interception. He hasn't fumbled this year, I don't believe. Um, I also honestly like I, I I think Arbuckle has not been healthy from the beginning. Like the one thing I've been surprised by is that he almost never run the ball. And you've mentioned him like sort of throwing on the run. And he did look a little better in that game against Saskatchewan where he was kind of scrambling one side or the other and and, and throwing off it. Um but I wonder if his hammy or whatever it is that he's got is is actually worse than we realize. And and you're going against Ottawa. So like it's not like you have to really you don't ever take a game for granted, obviously, but you got to figure we're going into that game as heavy, heavy favorites uh, at home. Ottawa is going to be playing possibly, you know, two kids that have never played or even, you know, a third kid who's never played in this league before. Um, it wouldn't hurt to give Arbuckle an extra week or two to heal. Um and, you know, what's the harm in that? I guess there's the risk. There always is the risk of a quarterback controversy. And, and you know, even though we don't have a lot of a lot of media following the team every day and asking tough questions, it'll get mentioned on TSN and it'll get into into Frank Ziccarelli's column or whatever. And and I don't want that. I don't want anything that's going to kind of damage what I think is very, very uh, good chemistry in the room. Uh, but. I don't see a lot of downside against Ottawa. I just say, okay, McLeod, take another, take another week, Nick, take another week to get healthy. And then the schedule gets harder after that. Right. So that's what I would do. I almost wonder if you can approach it the way that you approach game planning for an opponent, where you look at a defense's skill set and you look and say, okay, what, what does Ottawa do? Well, what are they? Maybe Ottawa is a bad, bad example. Let's pick a team that does something well. Yeah. So um, maybe you take a look at, at Montreal or something. You say, okay, well, what do they do? Well, what do they struggle with? Well, we've got a quarterback in our buckle who's great at RPOs. He's great at those quick passes. He's pretty swift on his feet. Uh, you know, he's, he's great at reading uh, complex coverages. And so if that's, if that's what this game calls for, we use our buckle. If you got a team that really struggles downfield, they they don't, you know, they tend to play a lot of the same coverage. They they show a lot of man, especially right, the clouds right. great with that. Right. Then, you, then that's the guy where you go with. I, I don't. I'm glad it's not me making that call because it, yeah. it's unconventional. And if it doesn't work, you're going to get blasted for it. But I, I wonder. Well, it's very interesting, and uh, you know, maybe that did what he's done some unconventional things already. Maybe that that's that's another way for him to look at. It. He, I, he certainly seems to be saying. You think he said, like, "I'm glad we've got two number one quarterbacks," uh, and and you know, it, it could very well be that he's thinking exactly along those lines, like situational usage based on the opponent, based on the situation in the game, and so on. And it could work. I mean, it would be it would be really cool. A lot of a lot of fans would be startled, but a lot of them would be pretty happy as well because you know teams are all fans are always asking for the backup quarterback or why can't we go back to the two quarterback system like Holloway and Barnes well it's it goes against the modern conventional thinking but you know what Dinwiddie's a young up-and-coming coach and maybe some of the ways that he's going to look at things are not going to be the ways traditional coaches look at things I think that's a really intriguing idea uh, if it, if it's a, if you want to, you want a game plan where you're going where you're going to go a lot of deep corners or deep deep posts or something against single coverage. Maybe McLeod Bethel Thompson is the guy. If it's going to be a, a, a game plan where you've got to maybe have more running action and more RPOs and so on, maybe it's Arbuckle. Could you sell those guys on that? I th I think you could. I mean, you could definitely sell Bethel Thompson on it. Whether whether Arbuckle would feel like, man, I'm every game I'm sitting, I'm not I'm not pro accumulating stats for my next contract. I don't know. I'd like to think he doesn't look at things that way, but who knows, right? 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, but I do think if there is a room that's going to buy into it, I think it's it's this quarterback room. Well, you're wow. talking about Holloway, and and uh, I, I want to transition into talking about your books, and I want to actually start with bouncing back just sure. for a second, because Paul, I love this book, and there's a few reasons why. First of all, it brought me back to my childhood. My first Argo memories are Conrad Holloway. He was the first wow. athlete I idolized as a kid, wow. so uh, I didn't really tune into the Argos until he arrived. And right. I guess it, I think it was actually i'm not sure if it was is 81 or 82 where i sort of started tuning in oh, in my memories i was i was too young to really know exactly where in my life i was sure, but sure i do remember that 83 season pretty vividly and that's where things really started to come to life for me what i loved about reading this book is that you there, it's, it's such a difficult story to tell I, I either one of these stories because there's so many people involved and i know trying to keep track usually you're following a story like this trying to keep track of names trying to keep all the loose ends together i don't know how long exactly it took you to write both of these pieces but the best thing about this book aside from the amazing story that it is there's not a moment that you introduce and then walk away from every mm. question that i mm. had was answered mm. at wow. some point there was never something that you forgot to tie up that you didn't follow up on any name that was brought in there was a reason for it it was going somewhere and you saw us through to the end of that story and it just made this thing come to life for me again so i'm going to say this with you know with, with with both books i'm going to absolutely say if you are watching this right now then you're you're certainly enough of an argos fan that you have no business not owning both of these books so you've got to find a way to get both of these books in in your collection and this one is especially easy to find right now so we'll get into that uh, in a little bit but you know this uh yeah this absolute joy reading this paul so before we talk about you're the rocket i just want to say again thank you for all the work you put into this i know it it must have taken ages but yeah an amazing read for an argos fan so well, well again, thank you ben that's that's very kind of you to say that and i mean I, I'm, I'm obviously very happy and proud of the of bouncing back and i the funny thing is it took a lot less time it took way less time than than year of the rocket it took me i from 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 conception to publication I think bouncing back took 14 months, which is just ridiculous. Like it's so fast. Um, uh, it was, I mean, and it, as great of a story as it was, and there's a lot of threads to that story, as you know from having read it, it wasn't as as big and sweeping as as Year of the Rocket is. Um, so, and I also was just kind of, I didn't really know what I was doing, and I just sort of, I just motored, like I, I, uh, you know, I ended, I interviewed less than half as many. I think I interviewed about 45 or 48 people for Bouncing Back, and it was more than 100 for the other one, um, and I had more a lot more like printed and visual and video research material for for about for a year of the rocket than i did for bouncing back so there was more to kind of pour pour over uh that's why this one took like four and a half years uh but yeah i mean i i started writing that book in i think it was may of 2012 and i knew that the the 30th anniversary of 83 was going to be at the following year i said okay i got to get this thing ready for the start of the next season which is basically 14 months from now uh as it turned out I ended up writing it, writing the bulk of it in about, I, th I think it was either, I think it was like two big, really intense writing sessions that sort of went on for about three or four weeks each. The, most of the book was written in those two, those two chunks of time. Um, I didn't really, it's funny, I didn't really figure out my writing style exactly at the beginning. And so there's one thing I, one of the things I'm not super happy about bouncing back is that I feel like the writing is a bit inconsistent in the sense that even though I think every chapter is good in its own way, I think I sort of found my voice a little bit more towards the last seven or eight chapters that I wrote, which are mostly the last seven or eight chapters of the book. It was, I wrote it pretty close to chronologically. Um, and so when I look, when I read it and when I go back and look at it now, I go, yeah, this, the first few chapters, I was still, one of the things that I, you know, you may have caught from this is that there's a lot of seg segments in the book where I will run like four or five quotes just separated by boldface, like Paul Pearson. And then what did he say? Terry Greer, what did he say? Without me sort of writing anything at all. And the reason for that is that I originally was going to do it as an oral history. It was going to be, the whole book was going to be written in the words of those who were there and who did it. Um, 
And that and that was my initial vision. And it was only after I started working with an extremely good editor, Don Gibb, that I that he he said, look, you you're part of this. You you know the story as well or better than some of these guys. And you you lived it. You need to you need to be part. You need not not to make the book about I me, but but your perspective needs to be captured. And you can do that by how you put how you stitch it together. And so that's what I ended up doing. And and so as I got deeper and deeper into it, I was more confident with my own ability to sort of tell the story in the way that I wanted to tell it and then weave in the quotes and the comments from from those that were there and the things that were in the newspapers or on TV or so on. So it's it's a little bit um it's a little bit muddled I think in the style, but it does capture a really good story and I think it captures it in a really good way and I I mean what's obviously self-serving for me to say but I agree any anybody that loves the Argos would find the stories in both books fascinating because these are two of the the most amazing periods in Argo history, the 81 to 83 period to go from the worst team we ever had to the to the first great cup champions in 31 years with many of the same guys. And then 91 obviously was the most magical, electrifying, crazy, spectacular year in the history of the team. I've always said probably not the greatest Argo team of all time. That's probably the 96, 97 Argos with Doug Flutie, um, who were just, they were just, they were just, they just motored over everybody. But 91 is a way more fun and exciting year than 96 and 97 were to me, at least. Uh, and 91 has got some other stuff, but, you know, 90 was pretty interesting too, with, with, I think the greatest offense in history. Uh, 92 had some crazy stuff happening, uh, rocket stomping on Annie McVeigh's head and, and so on. So again, it's kind Kind of a, a three almost a four-year story arc uh, the the new book but but the bulk of it is 91 which which is for sure the definitive argo year in history right it's been around for next year it'll be 150 years there's never been a year like 91 there's never going to be another one like 91 and so that's why i did that book and it did as i say it took me four and a half years it was a way bigger project to tackle there's a a lot of high praise for Year of the Rocket. And one of my favorite lines is Stephen Brunt, who said, if it, if it was fiction, you wouldn't believe it. And it's so true when you break down the roots of this story, you sort of look at, at well, you know, what was 1991 in a nutshell. It doesn't even make any sense. It's such, yeah. a, it's such a bizarre, fantastic piece that uh, he's right. It, you could you could never sell that idea as a piece of fiction because it's just so it's just so ridiculous. And yet yeah. there it was. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just the the backstory and the McNall bits and, and Gretzky and and what you know what a weird trio and, and I love John Candy man I love John Candy but the, the energy itself and and just looking at the rocket himself Paul I, I was just getting into football at that point I just started playing and I gotta tell you I was obsessed with Raheem Ishmael. I, I I was a lifelong Michigan Wolverines fan, and yet I watched him at Notre Dame, and I was glued to it. And I would actually watch a Notre Dame game if it was on over wow. a Michigan game because of Rocket, and that was saying a lot. And I, you know, I wouldn't. And, and there were some great Michigan. That was a great Michigan team that year too. I, I think that was was that Desmond Howard that year. Or is, it, yeah, it was, Howard was Howard was there, and and actually, of course, Rocket scored two kickoff return touchdowns in one game against the Wolverines. Right, I remember 88 that. Eighty-eight and ninety-two yards in the same game which is just nuts uh yeah so it was it was he was an electrifying i i say in the book possibly and i actually think it's probably true probably the fastest person ever to play canadian football i mean uh, i get into i get into his his 40 yard time and on the first day of training camp and and how uh you know everybody everybody stayed to watch he was the last guy to run it was the end of the long the second of two a days a second practice of the day at the end of the afternoon everybody's tired and, and hot and everybody stayed to watch it and of course they only had you know hand stopwatches timing not the electronic timing they have now, but the, the, the consensus was his time was 4.21. Uh, and they've never, the, the NFL has never had a 4.21 time since they introduced electronic timing. Uh, and when you watch the highlights of the guy on the field, like his first, his first punt return on the reverse from pinball in that home opener, his speed was his burst was unbelievable and it was like that all year long i mean when the guy when the guy got into the into the open field and turned it on he was just running away from it. he was he was making a gap against the guys chasing him uh, unbelievable speed 
And there are guys that have track speed that can put up a really great time. You look at a guy like John Ross, for example, who, yeah, he's blazing fast on a track, but it doesn't always translate onto the field. And Rocket was one of those guys where he may have run faster on the field than he ran in that in that 4 one that, uh, yeah. you know, some people have contested. But Paul, I got to show you something. This I went into my basement today to dig these out. So... I, I want to, first of all, I got to preface this by saying I was working as a Toronto Star paper boy at the time. And so my salary was not terrific. <laughs> and uh, I, as a kid, I put all my money, every cent I had into buying a collection of Rahib Ishmael rookie cards. And uh, wow, for those watching on YouTube, you can see these here. there, man. Yeah. I wanted 25 of them. So oh, perfect uh, and the number, yeah. what's so funny is trading cards were big at that time for about a two year window. So every card I own yeah. is worth nothing um, yeah. because that was the, you know, the wrong era to collect trading cards in. But the guy that I was buying these from, every time he got a new one in the store, I went in and bought it. And he's like, you know, you're going to lose your shirt on all these because they're <laughs> they're worth more now than they will ever be. And I said, I know, but it's not about that. I wanted 25 because he was 25. Yeah. And and that poster that's, and I should, you know, this could look like a prop here. I got to show you all, all my, all my oh, 25. Man, these, you, but, oh, yeah, you got them all. Yeah, right. They're yeah. all there. But uh the poster that you have behind you, I had two of them in my room, you know, to go along with my Icky Woods and yep. Boomer Esaias and all my Bengal greats. But I had I had the rocket up there and I just I, I can't tell you how exciting it was. Well, I can tell you, you know exactly how exciting it was to go and watch a game because you did. But the, yeah. I don't know if I've ever experienced a sporting event that had the electricity of that two seconds the last two seconds before he caught a punt or kick return, that when the ball was on its way down yeah. from its arc, you could hear the stadium. There was this noise that doesn't happen in any other moment in any sport, this sort of building feeling of adrenaline and excitement. And usually that's something, you know, it's after the it's after the event. It's after the crack of the bat at, at, at Blue Jays game. It's after the touchdown is thrown. But with the Rocket, it was the anticipation of, oh my God, he's going to get the ball. What's he going to do with it? Well, that is so interesting. I'd never actually noticed that. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and watch that because, of course, I'm, I've I've got this YouTube channel now called Year of the Rocket, where I'm posting a lot of video from back then, uh, and I have been struck by as I've been going through it and there's lots more to come. By the way, for those that are watching the channel, there's going to be lots more to come in the coming weeks. But uh, I've been struck by the, the 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 roar and the buzz when he when he gets the ball into his hands like it's it's it, especially on on a, on either a big re- return or or a deep pass pattern or something uh it just like there was, it was louder than anybody else like it was just the, the, the place just went berserk and i i remember being at that first game the, the home opener in 91 with my kids and 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 when he when he touched the ball he the first his first touch was on a pass reception uh throw from ricky foggy and it was it was loud but when he ran that that punt return back after pinball handed him the ball right up the sideline and then he took off up the right man it, it was just nuts um you'll love this story by the way i have to tell you since you've got those those cards that that, that was great to show those props um I didn't. I actually cut a chapter out of Year of the Rocket about the the the, the card wars between AW and Jago. Jago being uh, uh, a mom and pop type Canadian sports card, football card uh, company that I did a lot of work for over the years. I used to write the backs of the cards, and I got to know John Bradley very well. John's one of the two founders, along with Barry Goodman, and. Uh, I remember talking to him in 91 and he, you know, he was, he was so excited. We're going to get rocket. We're for, this is the first year we're going to actually produce wax packs and put them in Max Milks and Becker's and all the stores like that. Instead of just being for collectors only 500 sets, they went mass and then they couldn't get rocket because they get the Argos and rocket signed us an exclusive deal with AW. Um, and I had a really, what I thought was a really interesting chapter about that, that, that battle between these two, these two ventures, both of which ultimately failed. I mean, as you say, those cards are worthless. They, they mass overproduced and for two years 91 and 92 and the, the market was flooded with the cards um but it didn't really fit the narrative of the book it sort of slowed things down so i'm hoping i'm going to find somebody somewhere to publish the story because i think it's a hell of a story um you know and you know i give jago a lot of credit they, they kept producing they went back to their old ways in 93 you know we're going to do 500 sets just for diehard collectors we're going to charge players to have their card in the set instead of give the money like all the other card companies do uh and they kept going right they've it's only the 
last few years that they've sort of gotten out of the business. Um, and so uh, I it just it's a it's a funny little footnote of the whole thing that you know Rocket not only drove interest in the Argos and the CFL, but he actually created a little battle for Canadian football card supremacy in a market that had basically cards that almost not existed. Right? They between I think it was seventy two when the last Opeachy set was produced. 72 or 73, and then there was nothing until Jago came along in 81. And then Jago was these, this tiny little company doing like 500 sets a year for just hardcore collectors, no mass marketing whatsoever. And then all of a sudden, 91, you can go into every 7-Eleven and there's cards on, on sale, all because of Rocket, basically. I think I have one of the AWs somewhere uh, with uh, with him wearing the the white jersey and the I think it's white jersey, white pants. I think he's yeah, yeah, one. which they never wore. But he went down for a photo shoot before the season, and you know, Danny Webb was worried he wasn't going to bring the jersey back, right? So there's a lot of stories like that. Some of them didn't get into the book, but uh, it was it was it was a crazy it was a crazy year. So many crazy things happened. As you say, like Brent's right. If you tried to you tried to sell this sell a Hollywood scriptwriter on this, they go, "What? Well, come on, really? Like you're going to outbid the NFL? You're going to pay more money than anybody's ever?" paid any football player ever you're going to have two of the biggest stars the country's ever produced owning the team you're going to have the coldest gray cup of all time and the quarterback's going to lead you to victory despite having a broken collarbone come on like that's not happening right a guy's going to throw a frozen can of beer and almost hit, hit the rocket as he scores the winning touchdown yeah crazy it is it is and it, what's so interesting to me though is how We've never seen anything like it since, and we may not again, but like, why, why don't we have, why haven't there been celebrity owners? Why hasn't something, you know, maybe not to this extent, but why haven't we seen something like that again, where a celebrity with, because it's not like you need to be a trillionaire, like right. you do in the NFL to come in and really make an impression. I know, you know, the salary cap kind of changes things a little bit, but does it really? I, I don't know. There were cap issues and things like that yeah. back then. Well, you know, I think I think part of the reason for that probably is that celebrity ownership would probably work only in big celebrity type market like Toronto. I mean, arguably, maybe it could work in Vancouver. Maybe it could work in Montreal. But really, Toronto is kind of the most celebrity conscious city. And I think what's happened is that, you know, celebrities, have pro- anybody that's thought of it have probably not seen like it didn't work for McNall Gretzky and Candy. Like, why would it work for me? You know, I, I interesting because an interesting comment in the in the book from John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, who at the back in the early 90s was the CFL's legal counsel. And later he was, you know, chairman of the board of governors. And and I think he was acting commissioner for a few years a bit later. But uh, Tory, you know, was 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 there for all of the McNall Gretzky candy period and had some very interesting things to say about it. And one thing we talked about was, you know, the fact that uh, uh, when McNall's financial empire turned out, well, we, we when we all started finding out, when the wall started closing in on him, that it was all built on on defrauding investors and bankers, and he had to get excuse me, he had to get out of owning the Argos. It was one of the things they had to he had to jettison properties, and so we put the team up for sale. Uh, but he, it was done quietly. He told Brian Cooper, who was his chief operating officer and executive vice president, find a buyer, but don't tell John we're selling. And and I, I couldn't get McNall to tell me exactly why he looked, why he'd said that. But I think it was probably he was maybe ashamed. He didn't want John to know how how much his whole thing was was fake and, and built on fraud. Uh, so Candy didn't find out until very late in the process and too late to really stop it or to or to to like put together his own ownership group, although he wanted to for a brief time. He, he toyed with let's let's find somebody else to you know let let's let's i'll buy it let's get let's get somebody else and we'll, I'll, I'll keep owning it uh and then he had to reluctantly sort of concede that no i'm not going to do it uh and then uh, sadly like a couple of weeks later he died uh but there's a really interesting quote from john tory where he says like you know john candy was a was a wealthy man you know is a wealthy actor but he couldn't have afforded to lose $5 million a year. And that's probably what they would have been facing. Uh, and the Argos probably have been losing that money at that scale for most of the years in the last 30. So could any celebrity sustain that long term? You know, I suppose, yeah, sure. If Jeff Bezos wanted to buy the Argos, it would be pocket change to him. Uh, but you're not going to find like, you know, why would Drake want to do it? Drake wouldn't want to be associated with a brand that is not perceived as being a hip happening thing. Um, so that's probably why it hasn't happened. It's not it's not financially viable in Toronto. 
I'm not sure if it ever will be. I hope it will be. I still keep clinging to the idea that we can rebuild the fan base and get this thing back to the point where it's 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 not necessarily a money loser for MLSE. It may not be a money maker, but it's not a loser. But I'm worried that it's that we're we're getting increasingly far away from that, uh, and I'm really worried that this team may not be here in a few years. That's yeah. not quite answering your question, but that's where I feel, no, right? I know. And that's almost every conversation about the Argos at some point goes back to that. And that's something that, you know, always terrifies me. But I, I just, I hold on to the hope that, you know, it's been here for, for as long as it has. Yeah. Uh, you know, it would really take something uh, for, for that to cease. And I, you know, I hope it, yeah. uh, certainly hope it doesn't happen in, in my lifetime. Now, I, I know we got to wrap things up shortly, Paul, but I, I got to ask you, Please tell me what is your what's your what's your favorite what's your favorite moment in in researching this in in writing this there's got to be one thing that stood out as just you saying you know what this is just spectacular Wow, that's it. You know, it's funny. I've been asked similar questions to that, and I've n- I don't know. I've been able to pin it down. I mean, I, just finding some things out that I didn't know that I thought people would go, "Wow," is pretty is pretty cool, right? Uh, my my interview with Wayne Gretzky uh, was over the phone. It wasn't, which I always prefer to be face to face if at all possible. And I, I the best I could arrange with Wayne was a, was a was a phone conversation, um, and he was very good. I mean, he, I you know I would have loved longer with Wayne because I don't know that he told me the full story about you know how his own financial involvement all went down and so on but he did tell me something really fascinating he talked and it's in the book it's a story about how uh it didn't come as a huge surprise but to still to get it confirmed from the horse's mouth so to speak was you know pretty early on in the 91 season mcnall basically said to gretzky and candy you guys have got to talk some sense into rocket he's got to he's got to do his off the field job you know, he's got a, he, we're counting on him to be the Gretzky of Canadian football and he's not talking to the press. Uh, and so, so Gretzky and Candy had to go and have the talk with, with Rocket about this. And to hear Gretzky's description of it and how he and John were like staring at each other with their eyes wide open, like nobody told us about this. We didn't like somehow this, somehow in all the things we did, we never figured out, we never found out that Rocket wasn't going to be comfortable doing this stuff. So that type of revelation, you know, and, and one that's, that's a lot more minor, but one that I still get a real charge out of uh it, well, i went down to uh to los angeles to do a bunch of interviews down there including with mcnall and kelvin princeton and other players and and you know uh, chris and, and jennifer candy and so on and one of the people i interviewed was was uh laura ornest harry ornest's daughter uh and uh actually i interviewed harry laura in her in her home and then we got on the speakerphone we got her sister and her one of her two brothers uh so have a, like a like a multiple conversation there about about harry time with the owners owning the owning the Argos from 89 and 90 uh and so it's a, it's not a small it's only a small part of the book it's basically Harry's basically you know one chapter about his year of, as an, his two years as an owner and Harry himself who who's deserves his own book he's an incredibly fascinating guy and i had to take a lot of really good or stuff out of the book because it was just slowing things down too much to get to the 91 stuff uh but Laura Ornest had Harry saved a lot of stuff, and and Laura Ornest had all fi- all kinds of files in her in her possession that her her late father had left, and she let me go through the files, and there was some fascinating stuff in there, including this amazing uh, page. Harry Harry, I guess he he used a typewriter, and he at one point he he took the Argos. I think it was a 1989 media guide. And there was one page in the guide about, you know, with the biography of Harry Ornest. He photocopied the the biography page of Harry Ornest, stuck it into into a typewriter, an old school typewriter that you put actually that would actually type on, and then he, he sort of annotated it with some notes. And so the 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 description, you know, in the thing was about how he he became the the eighth owner of the Toronto Argonauts or something. And, you know, but just a little biography about Harry Ornest. And then in the margins, he writes this thing about, you know, it's too bad I, I don't have it right in front of me. I could find it. It was really, really funny. Uh, he talks about how, uh, you know, uh, the team was, you know, uh, sold on this date to Bruce McNall, Wayne Gretzky, and John Candy. Wayne was Wayne was essentially a silent partner and r- r- driven into the ground in less than one year. Uh, and then and then he's got I find these letters that he, like a letter that he wrote to or to to McNall in '96 saying you still owe me like 1.3 million dollars and and we've agreed that you're going to convert some of it to stock in Hollywood Park Race Track and you're. 
you know, and, and, and then, so I'm talking to the kids, I'm talking to Laura and Mike or Nest and Cindy. And I said, so like, do you actually know like how much your dad got for the Argos? And, and Mike says, well, I think it was about 2 million bucks. And at the time it was reported to be 5 million. It was $5 million deal. Uh, McNall's in for, for 3 million, 60%. Gresky's in for a million and Candy's in for a million. And Mike says to me, I think it was 2 million. And, and then I, I, I said, well, and he said, I know, I know how much he ended up with because I've still got a copy of the check. And so he, he sends me later a, a, a copy of the check that was, that was paid to the estate of Harry Ernest. He was gone by then. This is back in, I think, 2001 or so. Ornest, Ornest dies in 98. McNall goes to the pen in 96 or 97 and is in there for five or six years and eventually goes through the bankruptcy proceedings. And so paid payable to the OFE Enterprises, which is Harry Ornest's surviving company, Harry's dead, is $230,000 or something like that. And it says 9.80%. So he got less than 10 cents on the dollar for what he was owed by McNall. And so, which leads me to the speculation, which I wasn't able to confirm, but I, I pretty firmly believe that when they made that deal, it was said to be $5 million. Gretzky wrote a check for a million. Candy wrote a check for a million. Bruce wrote a check for zero and said, I'll owe these. I'll owe you, owe you uh, Harry. I'll owe you three million bucks. Never paid him. And Harry ends up getting 200, Harry's estate ends up getting $200,000, which is 9.8 cents on the dollar. So finding that sort of stuff is just fascinating, right? To be able to actually see the check and to see the amount that was payable to him and to read his snarky comments in the margins of the media guide. There was one letter that he wrote to his lawyer when they, he fired a guy at, at the Argos and then that there was a wrongful dismissal suit. And Harry was writing this letter complaining to the lawyer about the guy. And he was mad about the, the work he did, but he was really mad about the guy's terrible grammar. Like... <laughs> It's just hilarious, right? So unfortunately, that didn't get into the book because the Harry chapter was too long and it was taking too long to get to get to 91. But uh, finding that sort of stuff was a real blast. When I, I'd come out of some of those meet places and meetings and interviews, I go, man, this was so much fun, right? This sounds amazing. There's so many great, so many great stories like that. And uh, what an yeah. awesome thing for you to have been able to dig all of this stuff up because that's, yeah, that's I feel pretty very incredible. Fortunate. I, I said, I said to almost everybody I interviewed, I've got a solemn obligation to do justice to this amazing story because it was amazing. And the more I talked to people, the more amazing it became. Um, and so I did. I really felt like I got it. I've got to do. I've got to do right by this. And I hope the people that I wrote about feel I did. I don't know. I haven't had too much. I haven't had no feedback from them other than Dunnigan and and pinball who both wrote nice blurbs for the book and did read at least parts of it and were very very complimentary but uh yeah i want it to be i wrote it because i, I thought this story deserves to be something that will survive and be told in 50 years or 100 years because it is so insane uh it's like you would never believe it could have happened and and it deserves to live on forever it's a, it's not just a part of canadian football history it's a part of canadian history uh you know two of the greatest figures canada's ever produced uh, the, the intersection of sports and culture and celebrity and business, it's got all that stuff. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'd like to think the book will still be in print long after I'm gone and people will still pick it up and go, holy crap, that's unbelievable. So for any Argos fans, if there are any Argos fans that have not yet uh, picked up this book or placed an order for this book, Paul, where's the best way for them to, to get hold of this book? So the best options right now are either to order directly from the publisher, Sutherland House. Uh, if you go on Twitter, you can find them at SutherlandBooks. At SutherlandBooks is their Twitter handle, or look up Sutherland House on the web, and they've got they'll they'll, they'll ship it to you for free. They that's twenty four ninety five. They don't charge shipping in Canada. Um, you can also find it in Chapters Indigo. Uh, you can either find it in stores or you can order it through Chapters Indigo. Uh, the the one of the weird and actually really annoying things is that it's not for sale right now on Amazon because of some stupid bureaucratic issues ha happening within Amazon. Uh, and so I've actually, I'm just telling people, don't even try to order there. You're going to be waiting for a long time. Uh, now, having said that, if you're going to Argo games, it's in the kiosk, it's in the, it's in the sales kiosks at BMO. Um, 
and I will put in a little plug for the team, the, the next game on Wednesday, October 6th is going to be the 1991 reunion game. They're going to bring up a bunch of players for that game, bring a bunch of them back. Uh, uh, they're going to do a pretty cool thing. I've been involved in helping them put together a video presentation, uh, which I think is going to be pretty cool. I haven't seen it yet, but I, I know part of what it's going to be like, and I think it's going to be cool. Uh, and so if you want it, you can buy it at the stadium. That's 25 bucks uh, at the at the stadium. Um, and they've, they've got copies in at least two of, I don't know if there's any more. There may only be the two kiosks. I'm not sure, but both the kiosks that I looked at in the last game had copies there. Uh, not an unlimited supply, mind you. I mean, I think they, you know, there might be between them, there might be 20 or so copies. Uh, so if you re- if you don't want to take a chance, you know, go to either, you know, look online, see if Chapters Indigo's got it in, in your neighborhood. Also, by the way, I always try to make a plug for the independent guys, right? Like I live in, in Burlington. A different drummer is a fantastic bookstore here in town. They've got copies. Uh, I'm hoping and assuming Ben McNally's got them in Toronto. Um, so if you do have a local independent bookstore that you that you uh, like to frequent, those guys need business even more than Chapters Indigo does. Uh, so yeah, any of those places are available and Sutherland House as well. Uh, if anybody does have the book and wants me to sign a copy, some people like signed copies. And I don't, I'm not one of these go, person that, that goes and gets signatures on my own uh, books or that I collect, but other people like signed copies. I'm happy to meet up before or after games or at halftime and sign them. Uh, just said, you know, get get a hold of me through Twitter at PXW13 uh, or, you know, find me on the Argo fan forum or something and say, hey, can I can I see you at halftime? Uh, happy to do that. Paul, you've been really generous with your time today. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for being part of this podcast episode. Well, thank you, Ben. I think you, you do a fantastic job, as I say, and I, uh, I'm i proud to be part of it. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more of your analyses as we go go forward, because I get a coaching perspective and, a, and an X's and O's, an X's and R goes perspective that I don't have on my own. I, you know, I've watched football for a long time and I, I feel I'm fairly knowledgeable about it, but I, there's things that I just don't, that I don't see as a layman that a, that a football player or a coach would see. And I like being educated about that stuff. So keep it it up, man. It's really good. I appreciate you saying that. That's very kind. Well, that will just about do it for us on this episode of the X's and Argos podcast. For Paul Woods, my name is Ben Grant saying so long and may all your pre-snap reads be good ones. I'll see ya. Go Toronto Argos, go, go, go. Pull together, fight the foe, foe.